started uh, 2022 in a series in the Gospel of Matthew. So we're looking at um, Jesus' life in, in Matthew. And, and what Matthew does in his Gospel is that he, after Jesus is resurrected, he goes back to his whole journey with Jesus and his, the scriptures, his people's scriptures, and he rereads them in light of the resurrection, that this Jesus person has changed his whole life. And, this, and, and then he writes this Gospel of Matthew about how Jesus, who has, has come, he came and he was living amongst uh, his people. Then he died and then he was raised. And then it says that he ascended, he went to heaven. And so after that, even though Jesus' body is gone, in some mysterious way, he calls his people, the people that he leaves here on earth that are following that story, his body here as well. And so now we've moved into this series that we're in right now where this guy named Paul writes a letter to a group of people in Galatia. And he's trying to teach them how to be the body of Jesus in the world. And that's where we are at. And we started this series by looking at three different ways of, of possible ways of organizing church. There's the bounded set way of organizing church. And this uh, visual represents it, that we can create a boundary. We create lines we, to say who is in and who is out of God's community. And that can be really helpful in some ways, but it can also be hurtful and it can be uh, confusing because there's 40,000 different denominations in, North, or in, in the world. And we seem to all draw the lines just slightly differently. So who's right and who's wrong? And people, you know, line drawing can also leave people out. There's that feeling of being excluded. So some of us, especially in Vancouver, we rebel against this idea. And so what we do is we just get rid of all the lines. So this is called a fuzzy set. Everybody's just in, nobody's out. But Paul, in the letter to the Galatians, doesn't seem interested in either of these ways of thinking. The boundaries is not the focus for Paul. Instead, what he, he wants us to do is focus in a different way of organizing ourselves as the body of Christ, which is around this idea, or this picture, which is centered set. And it, it involves two different things. The first is that crown in the middle represents Jesus, that we put Jesus into the middle of our community, that he's the center, he's the guiding one, and we, we, we give him, Paul says, glory, which just means weight. He becomes this like weighty anchor in the middle of our community. And then rather than asking how close or how far we are away from God, maybe we're, we're, you know, a super Saiyan Christian, we're super close, or maybe we're just starting off on that relationship, the question becomes, which direction are we headed? Which ways are our arrows going? Are we headed towards Jesus? Are we saying yes to whatever God is inviting us to in our lives? Or are we, as the red arrows are, walking away? And that becomes the focus for us. And into that, we've, we've heard Paul share two different stories of what that looks like. When you put Jesus in the middle and you allow the Holy Spirit to guide you into whatever he's calling you to. So the first is Paul shares his own story. If you remember that, that was the second sermon that we did. That grace for Paul is always embodied. Grace is not an idea. And that's part of what makes bounded set. Is we, we, we try to take ideas and we curve them into boundaries. For Paul, grace is Jesus in the center embodied in our lives. It always takes place within a story, and grace always has to come and change our story. And Paul talks about that, how that happened in his own life. And secondly, last week we looked at Paul. He goes to Jerusalem to check out that his message is okay. So he meets with these other Christian leaders in Jerusalem, and uh, they have all allowed grace to come into their stories and change them. And so they're able to spot the grace in other people. Even though they have slightly different missions and ministries, it says, Paul says, uh, his ministry is to uncircumcised people, people who are not Jewish. And they have ministry to circumcised folks. They're able to spot the grace in each other. And therefore, that allows them to bless and not curse. And when we do that, when we put Jesus in the middle, this passage teaches us that it, if grace is in the middle and we focus on that, we've experienced it in our own lives, we can see it in other people. And it allows us to partner with each other 
rather than competing. Line drawing leads to competing. It allows for different indigenous expressions of mission rather than a colonizing expression of mission, that we're taking our understanding and our um, ethnic identity and the ways that we, we draw lines inadvertently and we put that on other people. And then finally, it allows us to minister to people in the margins. So Paul shared two stories with us that were positive of these people receiving grace in their stories, and it works out really well. And now he's going to share two stories with us that are not positive. So we're going to look at the passage today, Galatians 2. We're just going to walk through it and look at the next story that Paul shares. So verse 11, he writes, when Cephas, who is another name for Peter, came to Antioch. So just to point out, he he is not in Galatia with with Cephas. He's talking about a story that happened elsewhere. So when Cephas came to Antioch, he says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. In the previous passage, Peter had a really positive experience with Paul. They both extended grace to each other, even though they were in different spots. But something's happened. Peter has got off the rails a little bit. Verse 12, for he, Peter, regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. So there's something happening in and around food here that we need to understand. So last week, we talked about circumcision. Super fun week. If you weren't here, unbelievable. So exciting. Can't believe you didn't come. Um, and, uh, but this week, we're going to talk about food. And this, again, is a very foreign idea to us. Because this is, remember, we remember reading an ancient letter here, an ancient text. So we have to go back a little bit. And we're going to do that by looking at Paul's or Peter's story to understand the importance of food and meals in the ancient Near East. So in Acts 10, you can go and read this later if you want, it describes how grace enters into Peter's story. So Peter is, uh, we meet him, he's praying on the roof. He's, uh, you know, as you do. Um, And so he's praying up on the roof. Peter is a Jewish guy who is also a Jesus follower. So he's up there praying on the roof and he has this vision, this vision of a blanket with all these unclean animals coming down on it. So here's the first thing we need to know and understand. For Jewish people, meals are really important because of what you eat, what you eat. So you may have heard of the kosher food laws that they have, which means that there's certain things that they don't eat. It's a boundary marker for Jewish people. And so you can see it in this diagram here. The Jewish people understood that they had received the grace of God. That's kind of the green circle to become the people of God. God had chosen them, not because they're awesome or they're great, but because he chose them to be a light. That his power would be shown, shone through them, just like we sang this morning. And then God gives them the law, which is this black circle over here. So the kosher food laws. If you are my people, you've received grace, then you're going to be, uh, you, you need to obey this. You need to eat differently. And what happens is those two things get pushed together. This is what we do when we make boundaries, that the people of God become synonymous with the ways that we live our life. And this is what's happened for the Jewish people. So Peter sees all these unclean animals come down on this blanket. And then he hears this voice of God, the voice of God saying, Peter, get up, kill and eat. And, and Peter, like any good vegetarian in Vancouver, says, no, Lord, no, you know I only eat beyond meat burgers, Lord. No, he doesn't say that. He says, I've never ate anything like this before. I don't eat it because it's impure. It goes against the law that you've given us. And then the voice says to him again, don't call anything impure that I've made clean. And this happens three times. So Peter is deeply disturbed at this point in time. His boundaries, the two things he's smushed together, are being pulled apart by God. God is inviting him into a centered way of of, uh, being a follower of Jesus. Then God directs Peter outside, and outside there's this Roman centurion named Cornelius hanging out outside. And he's there to see Paul, and Paul says to him, you know, I'm not allowed to hang out with foreigners. But 
God has just shown me right now that he doesn't show favoritism. So all along this whole time, he says, I, I haven't been able to hang out with people of other ethnicities because that's against the boundaries of my people. But God is changing my boundaries right now. And so what he does is he invites Cornelius into his house. He says he shows him hospitality, which likely means that he brought him in. He maybe take, took care of his needs. And then they ate together. And that's the second thing we need to realize about ancient food laws. Who you ate with is really really important. Because who you eat with and who you host is a way of signaling your network. It's a way of showing your social status and even what your character is as a person. So if you ate with people of low character or you ate with people who are outside of your community, then you would probably be shamed to be outside. If you ate with people who are honored in your community, you would gain honor as well. And so Peter invites, uh, invites Cornelius and his friends in. It's an absolutely stunning thing, an absolutely stunning uh, evidence of grace in his life and that his boundaries are getting pulled down. And then Peter, as they're sitting there eating, he shares about the Christ event. He, he shares basically the gospel with Cornelius and his friends. He talks about how Jesus has come and it's relativized his life. It's entered into his story and it's changing his boundaries. And as Peter is sharing, it says the Holy Spirit falls on these uncircumcised foreigners. And it's evidence of grace for Peter. And Peter says this beautiful line. He says, who could stop these guys from being baptized? Which baptism is one of those rituals that says, you are now in the family of God. It's absolutely stunning. He brings, he invites these folks to be baptized and be part of the family of God. So this amazing thing happens with Peter. And then other Jewish Christians hear about it because they're like, you can't do that. You can't eat with these foreigners. You can't baptize them without getting them circumcised, without them following our rules. And Peter goes out, and the whole next chapter in Acts is just Peter defending what he's done to all these other people. So it's this amazing picture of how grace can take place in someone's life and challenge the boundaries that they have. Then Peter comes to Antioch, to this new place, and the church there becomes this amazing expression of a Jesus-shaped reality because they meet in homes. That's where they meet. They offer hospitality to each other, and they don't do it based on the kosher food laws or your ethnic identity. It says that Jews and Gentiles met together, men and women, slave and free, people with high honor in their cultures, people with very low honor in their culture, and they would come together around the table. That's how they would take the Lord's Supper together. They would physically eat. They put Jesus in the middle, in the middle of their table, and they would partake together and say, if you've received grace, you're welcome here. So it's this amazing picture in the ancient Near East of how grace changes us. So Peter has, has, was doing that before, but then Paul says, however, when they, when other Jewish Christians came to Antioch, Peter withdrew and separated himself. So Peter resorts to his old boundaries again, and he stops living in line with the story of grace. He's putting something else in the middle rather than Jesus. And before we move on, I want to just point something Uh, out really quickly here. If we look at faith in a bounded set way, then this story is very, very bizarre. Because think about who Peter is. He's got an unbelievable testimony, like so much better than all of ours put together. He's like, yeah, I kind of hung around with Jesus for three years while he was here. And then, you know, I disowned him, but then he died and he rose again. And then we had some fish. And then Jesus was like, hey, feed my sheep. So that's kind of like what I'm doing now. And uh, that's my story. And he's a leader within the church. He's honored as a person. He's a person who receives lots of honor. He wrote books of the Bible. He's welcomed Gentile believers into his community. Jesus said to him, hey, Peter, I'm going to build my church on you. There's like no bigger flex in the, the world of the church than to say that, yeah, I'm the guy that God said 
you know, you disagree with me? Well, God said he's going to build his church on me. Like, imagine that conversation. So when we think of it in a bounded set way, there's nobody who's closer. So if we go back again to this picture, there's no one who's closer to the center. There's no one who should be more in the boundaries than Peter. But at this moment, Paul says, none of that matters. All of that stuff that Peter did, it doesn't matter. Because in a Jesus-centered lens, when we look at it from a centered set way, Peter is facing away. So here, it's like he's, he's that, that black and white dude up, up at the top. Before, he's in the circle, if we just look at the boundaries. But what Paul is saying right now is that even though Peter is super close to Jesus, he spent time with Jesus, he's been blessed by Jesus, his arrow is facing the other direction. This is why it's so important for us to understand that, that Jesus and the Bible is not about bounded set, it's about centered. Peter has put his old boundaries up. And, and I want to say this because I think many of us still look at uh, faith in the bounded set way. And I'll just say I do too. It's, it's the way that I've for very long looked at my faith. I think that I'm a Christian because, you know, I was baptized. Or, you know, I, I didn't sleep with my boyfriend or girlfriend in university. Or I give a lot of money. Or I went on a mission trip. Or I serve every week. And all of those things are great. Those things are fantastic. Those things are good. But Paul's focus is on a very different question when he's talking about Peter here. And he wants to challenge us in the same way. He's asking not the bounded set question. He's asking a different one. He's asking about the arrows. Which way is your life trending? Which way are you facing? We sang again this morning talking about Pentecost Sunday. And Paul will pick up on this later in Galatians. Are you listening to the voice of the Spirit? Are you partnering with the Spirit? Wherever he's inviting you to become more like Jesus. And I appreciate, Cindy, you sharing that in your life. Where are you, where are we becoming invited to become more and more like Jesus? Or as we've been saying in this series, is Jesus at the center? And is your arrow, is your life turned towards him? And right now, Peter, or Paul is saying that Peter's life is faced away. It's faced in the opposite direction. This disciple who's done so much doesn't have Jesus at the center at this moment. And that's the reason that Paul is so concerned. So the question for us is why? Why would, would Peter stop eating with uncircumcised people? Why would he stop, eat, stop eating with these Gentile believers? Well, here's what the passage says. Peter withdrew and separated himself because he feared. He feared those from the circumcision party. So it's fear that's driving Peter away. This is an emotional response. That's what Peter is talking about here. And here's why this is so important for us. Uh, I read, uh, I've read the, a couple books by this psychologist. His name is Jonathan Haidt. He's great. He's not a Christian, but he's phenomenal. He's wrote a couple of really good books. And one of the pictures or metaphors that he gives is really helpful to me. It's called The Elephant and the Rider. So you can, you can see the picture here. The elephant describes our emotional brain. This is our emotions. And the rider describes our rational brain or maybe mental faculties and, and uh, capacities. And, and Jonathan Haidt is very concerned with moral decisions that we make. So he asks the question, like, how do we make moral decisions with these two different competing things in our lives? And what we often think is that it's the rider who's guiding everything. The rider is guiding the elephant around on the journey. But here's why this is such a great picture. Who wins in a fight? An elephant or the rider? And don't think of like Dwayne Johnson sitting on top of like a tiny elephant. This is like, think of like a jockey, okay? Like it's a tiny little guy. So who are you putting your money on? The elephant or the rider? The elephant wins every single time. And that's not rocket science. But what's really interesting is what the rider does. What does the rider do? That's what Height's interested in. When the rider's like, hey, we should go this way, and the elephant's like, we're going this way. 
what does the rider do? He can't get off. He can't get out of the body. So what Haidt and his team showed, experiment after experiment, what happens is in those moments where our brain is telling us to go this way and our emotions are telling us to go this way, the rider starts to rationalize the direction of the elephant. Our brains rationalize where the, our emotions are going. And that might be, so this might be a bit ethereal. Let me give you a quick example. I am trying to lose a little bit of, of weight uh, as I pull up my pants. That was really, un I, that was subconscious. I think I need to go back to counseling. That was really weird. Um, so I gained a little bit of weight over COVID, over the winter, and I'm cycling again. And how fast you go on your bike is directly proportionate to, especially climbing, directly proportionate to how much weight you're carrying. So I'm trying to lose a little bit of weight, but I've, in my job and in my, I do consulting on the side, especially in my consulting job, I find that so many meetings take place over meals. And they get, they'll, I'll get invited out for lunch here, there, and the other place. And uh, oftentimes, one of the offices I consult at is right beside a Taco Fino which is kind of awesome, kind of terrible. So I go in, and the rider, my brain is like, okay, we're going to eat healthy. It's just lunchtime. We're just going to be wise about what we, we take in. And then what happens is I step inside, I sit down, and the elephant is just like nachos. Nachos and a beer right now. And what happens is really interesting, and what Haidt is trying to say is that what happens is the rider... The writer knows that I should be headed in this direction, but what, what I find myself doing is slowly rationalizing. Well, it's cheat day. It's usually not cheat day. Every day is not cheat day. Or like, well, you, did, you rode here on your bike, so it's, you know, or you're going to work out tom some, tomorrow, sometime this week. And what happens is the rider will slowly start to rationalize where the elephant wants to go. And maybe you guys can, can relate to that in your own life. Here's why this is important to us and to our faith. Most of us think we believe what we believe because it's right, that the rider has got us there, that we've rationalized ourselves to that place because it's obvious. We'll say things like that. It's obvious. It's logical. The rider is in control. But if Jonathan Haidt is correct, and I think he is, then the way that we come to a lot of our beliefs, not all, but a way that we come to them is that we're actually way more emotionally led than we'd like to believe. We rationalize what we believe because we're already going there emotionally. And this is true whether you're a Christian or whether you find yourself in a place of like deconstruction or whether you're an atheist. One of the times this became most clear to me, I used to work in campus ministry and we invited this guy, his name is Urban McManus. And uh, he, I don't agree with everything that he says, but he's probably one of the most gifted evangelists I've ever spent time around. He was doing a, 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 a talk. So he talked for like 45 minutes or whatever, then he opened it up for Q&A. So some people asked some questions, and then this guy stood up. He was obviously agitated. He stood up, and he said, I'm an atheist, and you Christians are idiots. And he said, it bothers me so much. And Erwin put up his hand, and he said, I'm sorry. Just, uh, I'm just going to interrupt you for a moment. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that that's been your experience. He said, who hurt you? Who hurt you? And the whole tenor of the, of the conversation switched. See, that person was standing up, and he was just saying, rider, 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 rider. And Erwin started talking to that person's elephant. And the whole conversation shifted. And he told a story. He told a story of how he had been hurt and people in his family had been hurt by the church. It wasn't just the rider. It was the elephant. And he'd rationalized why he was there. And that's true for all of us. You know, one of the terms that Jonathan Haidt uses is that our brain is much less like a non-biased scientist, that we're just studying things rationally, and non-attached. He calls it, our, our writer is like our in-house press secretary. That's what he calls it. 
If you've ever watched American politics, the president will go and just do stuff, and then it's the in-house press secretary's job to come to the front in front of all the reporters and be like, yeah, so here's why. Uh, which was, it was fascinating to watch in the Trump presidency, where people would just come up and be like, so here's how that might make sense. I'm going to quit my job. And then they ran through like four or five of them. So um, that's how our rider works. We're, it's an in-house press secretary for our elephant. Now, let's get back to our text. Emotions are not bad. Emotions are not wrong. The elephant is not your enemy. But Paul is saying that our elephant can cause us to walk out of step with grace, to not put Jesus in the middle. And Paul is saying that deep emotions are things that move Peter away from having grace embody his life. This is why it's really, really important. That's why we're talking about fear. It's not just because we need to talk about our emotions. It's because it causes us to walk out of step with grace. Now, this word fear here can be translated one of two ways from what I understand. The first way is fear, what we read, which is more of an individualistic uh, emotion. Um, and, and if, you know, like, I'm afraid, that would be the way that we would say it. The second way, though, that, that it could be described is it says, I wanted to show deep honor for. So, um, I want, somebody want, I want to show deep honor for. So, so, like, for example, that Peter wanted to show deep honor for the people who were coming from the circumcision party. And that's a more collective emotion. And I, I mention that because some of us here may be in that space instead, where we have more of a sense of, it's not a fear, but it's a sense of obligation to our family or to our parents or to our tribe. And so when I use the word fear, I'm going to be addressing both of those things. You can think of it in both of those terms. So either way, though, fear is an uncomfortable emotion, and it makes us feel, or at least I'll just speak for myself, it makes me feel weak when I have fear in my life. And that, again, gives the rider more reason to rationalize. That gives me more power if I can rationalize why I'm afraid. And this, unfortunately, because I'm not in touch with the elephant in my life, gives fear even more power. I mentioned before that if you're a bounded person, so we go back to that idea in those pictures, if you're a bounded person, oftentimes your fear, your greatest fear is that you're going to become fuzzy. And so what ends up happening is you become more entrenched in being bounded. But if that's your emotion, your emotion starts with fear, then what the rider does is, is the rider comes along and it demonizes those people that are fuzzy. It says those people are idiots. Can't believe those people. They're just so naive about how life works. I can't believe that they would even call themselves Christians. They're not, they're not Christians. They're more interested in their own authenticity. And our, our rider is working because we're afraid. Because we're afraid of becoming like those folks. Or to use collective language, if the fear is that my tribe is a bounded group of people, and you can think of this in many different ways. Maybe, for example, and I'll speak, maybe I'll speak for myself. If my tribe is, is a theological bounded set, the way that I understand God, a systematic way of understanding God. And I know if I become centered that my tribe is going to think of me as fuzzy, they're going to shame me, and that's going to um, influence my decision. It's going to cause fear. And if I'm not aware of that, that fear is driving, I'll start to rationalize, yeah, those fuzzy people. I can't believe it. But all I'm trying to do is avoid shame in my life and keep honor. Or I'll say this, in, in our community here, if you are a non-Caucasian person, especially uh, we've had the privilege of having a lot of Aboriginal folks here, and I've watched this happen again and again. If they are part of a group of people, they are part of a group of people, Aboriginal people, or many other cultures are like this too. If you take your faith seriously, your, your tribe 
will shame you for becoming white. And if that fear and that shame is what's driving your decisions, you're going to be afraid. But you might rationalize it. Rationalize the reasons why if we're not in touch with the elephant in our lives because we're going to lose honor and we don't want to do that. The same thing is true. If you're fuzzy and your greatest fear is becoming bounded, then you're going to, that that emotion is fear and you're going to become more and more fuzzy, but you're going to rationalize it. Do you understand? Those bounded people, oh, they're not even Jesus followers. They're hypocrites and Pharisees. You're going to demonize the other group of people because the fear is that we're going to move over there. Or, Again, if your tribe is fuzzy set people, which makes sense in Vancouver, like Vancouver is just filled with fuzzy set people when it comes to faith. You do you, do whatever you want. And if you take your faith more seriously, maybe people in your tribe, people that are your friends, are going to see you as becoming a bounded person. They're going to be like, oh, you're just like the rest of those evangelicals, aren't you? And again, it's fear. It's fear that's driving us. It's a, it's, a, it's a sense that we're going to be shamed and lose honor within our community. And so what we might do is rationalize our decisions. Well, I'm just not taking my faith so seriously because I'm busy or because I'm kind of unsure. So we think we're being rational is the issue, but it actually is being driven by fear. That's what, that's what Peter is, or Paul is getting at here with Peter. And the big problem here is that we become more entrenched in our positions and run by fear rather than being centered on Jesus and free, which is what Paul is concerned with in this passage. That's why knowing our stories is so, so, so important, and why Paul keeps talking through stories, is because if we, we need to understand how our elephant is running around in our lives. We need to understand how we rationalize the elephant running around, and how fear plays out in our life and in our faith. So, as I've said before, uh, I'm a bit of an emotional idiot, so uh, my vocabulary around uh, emotion stuff is quite limited. So I'm going to invite my emotional best friend, uh, my, my, my emotional spokesperson up, my wife, Sarah, and uh, she's going to help to give a little bit more language to this. And again, we're just trying to, we're trying to put flesh and bones and skin on these ideas uh, to talk about how fear actually works in our lives and in our world. And so Sarah's going to, um, I'm going to interview her a little bit here as we close just to help understand how fear does transform our lives and affects our faith. All right. <laughs> Untangled. Untangled. Not emotionally, but... Um, Very tangled. Yes. Okay, so, so tell us a little bit about how you've become more self-aware about fear in your own life in sure. the past few years. He's the public speaker, not me, so I, I have more notes than he does. But fear is an interesting um, word, and I think you touched on this a little bit, because we don't want to see ourselves as fearful or driven by fear. And so we picture someone who is, and we often want to be stronger than that. And so I think um, the, it wasn't fear that I initially recognized in myself, more the manifestations of fear or the behaviors and ta tactics that I used to suppress it. So... Um, for me, I had unknowingly managed anxiety my whole life, and so I was pretty defensive hearing that I was a person who had fears because I'd been working so hard not to have them. Um, so I, I was painful to acknowledge this truth and that I acted out of these fears. I had a pretty big breakthrough. I, I kind of came up on this slide before, but pretty big breakthrough a few years ago um, when I started learning about the Enneagram. And we don't really have time to, to go down that road too far today, but um, if you're not familiar, um, just for the sake of time, 
The Enneagram is essentially like a personality typing that describes patterns in how people interpret the world and basic motivations that drive them. So and divides people up into nine types, and each type has a desire and a fear. And so uh, through learning about this, I, I came to understand that I'm a type six, and that my fear is being without support and guidance. And so that, that was a huge breakthrough for me to understand that about myself, this fear of being without support and guidance that I was managing in all kinds of different ways. Um, so my key motivation would be to have security, to feel supported by others, to have certitude and reassurance, uh, and to fight against anxiety and insecurity, which is what I had been doing. Um, so that, that was what was difficult about hearing that I was a person who feared, because I'd been fighting against that fear and insecurity for so long. Um, the truth is my fear of being without support and guidance caused me to constantly look to outside sources for security. And when, when you hear the word security and fear, like don't think literal, like I'm not, I'm actually quite brave about a lot of literal things. Um, and so it's more of a soul safety, uh, like a soul security. Am I okay? Am I gonna be okay? Am I gonna have everything that I need? So this can lead me to be too loyal to a bounded set because I'm, I'm finding that security outside of myself, or it can lead me to become disappointed and disillusioned with a bounded set and to, to push back against it. And I think the term I've used with you before is sometimes I just wanna light a match and throw it on, on things because I just, I've lost trust in it. And so um, that, uh, as I came to see that that was what fear was doing, it was taking guidance and support outside of myself and outside of my faith and putting it in other people and in bounded groups. Yeah. <laughs> and how has that, uh, how has that er erected boundaries or, or caused you to maybe like demonize people in your own? Um, I think, uh, for, well, I mean, I'll come to this later on about, about okay. how I move the boundaries, but I think like um, for Should me- Should I move on to the next yeah, question? Yeah, please do. Okay, all right, good. <laughs> we practiced, we, we practiced. We, we sort of did, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's my fault. Okay, so the Enneagram tool has been helpful in understanding fear for you, like, but it also talks about how everybody manifests fear in certain ways. Yeah, so I mentioned that I'm a type six and that I have fears of lacking support or guidance, um, but that may not resonate with you. So every person has something that they fear um, and we're mostly una unaware of it. And it's generally related to what makes us feel okay in ourselves or um, successful or acceptable to other people. Um, so uh, it informs our actions and our decisions in the way that we interpret the world around us. And so, um, So you'll see here on the screen, I just, this is just a summary, but um, you may find yourself there. You may see like, oh, I relate to this, or it may be something that you need to spend a bit more time thinking about what is that, how does that actually manifest in my life? I don't realize that that is the fear underneath what I'm doing. Um, and, and it can, each personality type can really be driven towards um, bounded or fuzzy, but I would say, like we were talking about this last night, and I would say actually, I, I think, all of us are actually driven toward bounded because we're looking for how we're okay in who we are. So if we can find other people that are like us or we can find a scenario where we say, oh, this is where the line is, then like I'm okay. So I think we're much more, all of us, regardless of what we're fearful of, are looking for that safety in where, in where the lines are. Yeah, good. Oh, and I did want to say one other thing. Um, 
just in terms of like learning this about ourselves, it's not so that we can become like more enamored and focused with ourselves. I know that's often the pushback on like, let's look at ourselves and, and learn about ourselves, but you mentioned this in the last sermon and um, the, the point of knowing our own stories is actually the exact opposite. It's actually so that we can bring those stories into God's story. We can make his story primary because when we're not aware of our fears, how can his love cast them out? How, when we don't even know what we're afraid of, when we don't even know what to bring to him, what, we're, what fears are driving us, how can he bring healing to those spaces? And so the very point of knowing more about what fears are driving you is so that it is not the primary story, uh, so that it is coming in under like God's story. Yeah, good. Um, well, I'll just mention really quickly, I'm, I'm an Enneagram 5, so one of my fears like up on there is of being incapable and uninformed. So uh, that is also related to the identity that I have, and it causes me then to demonize people who are incapable, or I see as uninformed, and creates a bounded set around me. And it's really tough when you're always right. I just have to be honest with you all, okay? It's just, the, that's the cross that I bear. And, um, but it's just really, it, that, that's one of the ways. And, and both of us, actually, as we were chatting last night, we realized we move more to bounded set. Yep. But it's so interesting, this passage here, the next verse is, it says, then the rest of the Jews, so Peter does this his hypocrisy in his own life. And it says, the rest of the Jews joined in his hypocrisy, though even Barnabas was led astray. And I think as a leader in the church and leaders in our family, it's so important that we're aware of our fears so that we're not also doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so working on that in ourselves. So let's, let's land the plane here. How can we um, stop fear from running our lives? How do we stay centered rather than continuing to make and create new boundaries? Well, I think I'll speak for us since this is something that we sat down and talked about for ourselves. And I'll, I'll speak to what I, I realized for us is that when these fears, my fear of being without support and guidance, your fear of being incapable or incompetent or not knowing enough, um, when we allow those fears to, to run us, we, in this last season, some boundaries went up and suddenly we found ourselves on the outside of it. And, and it was like, oh, the boundary line's there. We thought we were in, but now we're being told we're fuzzy and we're on the outside of the boundary, actually. And You'd think for some people, well, forget it then, I'm going fuzzy and there is no boundary and I don't like boundaries. It's actually not our temptation. Our temptation is to say, oh, that, oh, okay, then the boundary's over here. You're actually out. We're actually doing it right. We, we're actually inside. And so I think that the temptation for us when, when our fears rise to the surface, I'm on the outside, I don't have support and guidance. These other people think I'm incompetent or incapable of doing my job. I will draw boundaries where now I'm in and they're out. And we're all going around doing that to each other. And so we have this opportunity in this time that, you know, you have, my fears have come to my door um, that I don't have security and guidance in the way that I thought that I did in my group. You, um, you have been, you know, you're, you've had people challenged to say whether or not you're competent in your job or whether you really know enough to do what you're Nobody doing. Nobody says that, by the way. You have people in your home so for the record. who challenge you and question your competency. And so, you know, this could cause us to retreat to the safety of our boundaries where, where we know we're okay and we can, like you said, like you said, demonize or vilify others. We know how to self-medicate our fears in that way. But we have an opportunity to meet Jesus in our fears. 
um, to choose to center on him instead of looking to a group or a system to anchor us. So you can put your worth in Jesus and hear him say that you're enough. And you can look at him and say, you're the one with all the wisdom and the answers, and I, I don't have to. That doesn't have to be my identity. And I can look to him uh, as the one who, who is my anchor and never leaves. And so we have this opportunity to choose whether we want to create a different boundary around this church and say, look, this is actually the boundary and we're in, turns out. Or we have this opportunity to not pour that, that um, bitterness in to our community and instead say, these are my fears and my fears have come true and I need to turn towards Jesus and say that that is where I can find safety and security. That is where I can find my worth and my identity. Uh, and, it, and it can, our fear can, can drive us away from him and can make us blind to the fact that we're riding that elephant or it can, it can bring us to him. We can bring those fears to Jesus. Yeah, thank you. I'll just close with this passage that Paul says in, in verse 20, and we'll be looking at this more next week. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And this is the same thing that Sarah's talking about, that we, we learn how to take that, that Christ-shaped life of dying to ourselves, being honest with our fears, with each other and with Jesus, but to learning to die to ourselves and rise and become new human beings that are able to put Jesus in the center and allow him to become our identity rather than any other way that we would put people on the other side of that, demonize them, throw vitriol at them. And so that's the invitation for us, to die and rise, to allow Jesus to become our life and our hope, be honest with our fears about it with each other and with God, and allow him to minister to us so that we're able to live in freedom rather than fear. Let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come to you and to be learn from this text uh, it's very surprising in many ways, I think, that, that this is the focus, that there is fear happening and driving people to become bounded and walk away from being centered on you, creating division in the church in um, Antioch. So we pray that you would help us to be honest about our fears, to recognize them, to see them, and to recalibrate ourselves and our identity in and around you rather than ways that we might erect new boundaries and keep other people out. So as a community, we pray that you would teach us how to do that as we respond together now in giving and in singing and in taking um, communion together. Would you center us once again on you and allow uh, you to take the place of, of glory and worship in our lives. We pray this together in the name of Christ. Amen.